Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 through 14 will be our text this morning. This so happens to be that this was our text last week as well. And we made it through those first three verses where we were seeing a comparison that is being made between Christ and His sacrifice upon the cross and that Levitical priesthood. We see a comparison between what Christ has accomplished versus what was not accomplished in that Old Testament sacrificial priesthood. And we saw various points that were were made is that Christ provided expiation. Now I say the word expiation hoping that we all remembered what it meant is that it's a removal of sins. That Christ actually removes our sins in His sacrifice versus the the priesthood, the sacrificial system could not remove sins. And we saw that in verse 11, where it says that they could never take away sins. Then the second thing that we saw is that Christ reigns as King. After He had offered His one sacrifice, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down to reign as sovereign Lord, as sovereign King over all that exists. And then we get to this third point, which is the point this morning, which is that Christ perfects the imperfect. Christ perfects the imperfect. And so we see that the ultimate goal of our salvation is that idea of perfection. But rather than seeing it merely as an idea, we actually see that in the cross of Christ, perfection is accomplished for all time. And so the message to the Hebrews is why would you look back upon the law where the law makes nothing perfect. And the message for us would be today, why would we look upon our works and our own efforts? Because we know that by them nothing is made perfect. So let us hear the word of God, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. The idea of the imperfect being perfected should seem like a strange idea because we have no example in our human existence of something that's perfect. And we know that we ourselves fall short of perfection. And so the idea of perfection and something being perfected is almost a foreign concept to us. 
But this is what the scriptures tell us Christ actually accomplishes in his salvation. And so the first thing I want us to see is this, is Christ offered himself definitively. And because Christ offered himself definitively, it is, means it's complete, it's whole, it's no longer needed. In fact, this is what the text tells us in verse 14, for by a single offering, you know, just hang on that for a second, this is speaking of the definitive, complete work of Christ. There's no work in our salvation that is left to be completed, but rather Christ himself has accomplished it with this single offering. You'll notice the first word is for, which is introducing the conclusion of the argument. And that is in contrast to verse 11, where we see that the priest, the Levitical priesthood, they, they stand. We saw that what that word stands means last week is that their jobs never finished. They stood daily. And they offered repeatedly all of these languages just to just tell us that their, their job was never complete. They were just continually offering sacrifices. And so this is in comparison to Christ who offers one sacrifice, a, a single sacrifice. And if Christ offered a single sacrifice, it means that it's a complete sacrifice. It's definitive. And if it's definitive, it means it's sufficient to accomplish that which it was forced to accomplish. So there's no need for another work for our salvation. And why is that? Well, notice what the book of Hebrews tells us Christ offered. And it's important we reflect upon what Scripture tells us in what Christ offered. In verse 5 of chapter 10, in quoting the psalmist, Christ says, but a body you have prepared for me. And in verse 10, we see this. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You think about every time we celebrate the communion, every time we come together for the Lord's Supper, we repeat those words of Christ, this is my body which is broken for you. Christ offered his body, his human flesh. He offered himself, and that is what the meaning of his body is, is he offered himself on our behalf. We also think about his blood that was offered, and that he offered up his blood for us. In fact, we see that we are purified by his blood, and that Christ himself offered up his own blood. In fact, that's the whole entire uh, contrast that we see in chapter 9, is that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, but the blood of Christ itself does, in fact. Now, I think it's important we think about the blood of Christ for a second, and what the scripture tells us about it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 19, it says this, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice how the blood of Christ is described, that which he gave. The word precious is another word that can be sometimes translated as jewels. In fact, that's how it's translated in other places of the scripture. 
It's that same word, precious, could be translated as jewels. And that's the whole reason I share that with us is so that we see what the meaning of precious is. It's speaking of something with value. But when it says of Christ's precious blood, that which is offered, it has a value and it has a weight that cannot be measured. It has a value to it that is incomparable to anything else that we will ever know. And Christ offers up his body, that is to say, offers up himself. But in this, it's an offering of his blood. How much more will we be made clean by the blood of Christ? It says in 1 John of the blood of Christ, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So you put these things together about the blood of Christ, the value of it, the preciousness of it, the body of Christ, that is, his life, and then we see here that it cleanses us. And what does it mean to be cleansed? It means to be made pure. What's the whole entire theme of verse 14 of Hebrews? Perfection. And why is it that we can be brought to that state? Is it by anything that I could contribute or is it anything that I could do or do we see it as that single offering of Christ And as 1 John tells us, that it cleanses us from sin. And in Hebrews, the context is not a cleansing from sin as much as it is a taking away of sins, which is another picture of saying we have been cleansed. And what we also have to understand about this single offering, this definitive, complete offering of Christ, is that in the offering of his body and in the shedding of his blood, his body was, and blood were completely drained. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we talk about how just one drop of blood of Christ would be enough to cleanse the world of its sin. And I get the meaning of that, but Christ didn't come to experience just a pinprick and a drop of blood. Otherwise, that's what the Father would have required. But the curse of sin is death. Christ's offering was unto death. Death was the result of the curse. And in order to reverse or to remove the curse, death was required. And so when we think of this shed blood, when we think of the body of Christ, we must think of it in terms of death. And by death and through that judgment, we receive salvation. That Christ gave up his life. And whose body and whose blood was this? It's the one that we are told that sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, the one that is now sovereignly ruling over the entire universe. The one that is the eternally begotten Son of God is the one that gave his life. And this is beyond a mystery to us. We are told in Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 3, he is the the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That is to say that God takes on human flesh, God becomes man, and it is God 
upon the cross, the God-man. The sovereign king of the universe is the one who offered his body. It is God incarnate. It is the one sent by the Father to take on flesh and then to represent humanity in that flesh, as we see in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death... Death and flesh and blood might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the eternally begotten Son of God takes on flesh, assumes a true human existence, and gives his life as an offering And he did this according to the will of the Father. He he did this with joy. We see that in Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Philippians captures this, perhaps in the, the fewest words, in Hebrews chapter, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2. We see in verse 6, speaking of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, which is to say his full deity, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every time we read about the deity of Christ taking on humanity and then going to the cross and dying a death, we're reading words that we cannot ever fully comprehend. It's supposed to lead us to awe of what great mercy and what great condescension of our merciful, gracious God that He would take on flesh for us. This is why it was a single offering. Scripture tells us it was also a single offering and it was a definitive offering because of not only who he was, but how it was received. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, we're given these instructions and walk in love as Christ loved us. So the command here is walk in love as Christ loved us. So that's how we're supposed to walk and why and gave himself up. For us, it's that word we've looked at so many times, on our behalf, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does that mean to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God? It means that his single, one-time, definitive offering upon the cross was accepted by the Father. It pleased the Father. Now, it did not please the Father to wound the Son, but it pleased the Father in the Son's obedience. It pleased the Father to be a just and holy God and to punish sin. Christ, who knew no sin, but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is why it was a single 
and definitive sacrifices because of the one who gave it. And this is why we're also told Christ can make imperfect people perfect. And so this brings us to our second point, is this is Christ brought perfection. The text tells us he is perfected for all time. That word perfection, it means to be brought to completion. Sometimes it's translated as finished. It's, in fact, it's, the, it's a single word that Christ uses upon the cross to say it is finished. It means something is finished, it's brought to completion, it's brought to its wholeness. It's in the perfect tense, which means it's in a past accomplishment, and we're now enjoying the benefits of it right now in the present time. That's what it means. So what happened in this perfection is something Christ accomplished, but now we experience it. Christ perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father in the redemption of a people that the Father had given him. And only a perfect God could accomplish this. And only a man could stand as a federal head in the place of humanity. Only Jesus, the God-man, truly God, truly man, one being in two natures, one person in two natures, could bring about perfection. The great Puritan John Owen says this perfection is a state and condition of that grace and those privileges which the law, priests, and sacrifices could never bring them unto. In other words, the Hebrews to whom this letter was written, they're, they're looking, at, looking back at that Mosaic law and saying, how could we be perfected by that? And John Owen is making the point that there is no amount of work, there's no amount of sacrifices, there's no greatness of, of a priesthood that could bring us to perfection. To state it another way, as we have continually seen because it's part and parcel part of the gospel is there is nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves righteous. We cannot follow the law enough to become righteous. We'll always fall short of it. And that's what the point is. Is that perfection by Christ is accomplished and it's something that we ourselves could never bring about. And it's not hard to know why the Hebrews to whom this letter was written would struggle with this idea of being perfected. And why? Because you and I inherently and intrinsically know how imperfect we are. I don't need to be reminded of my imperfections. The moment I wake up, they're right before me. We don't need to be told we're imperfect. We understand that. But yet our whole life is a striving after that perfection. And what do we see that it is? At the end of the day, it's a striving after the wind. We can no longer capture perfection than we can capture the wind. And it's so important. We need to see the point that God is making for us here about this idea of what perfection is. Just for a moment, so we, we gather this, I want you to see what we read about Christ's mission. 
In chapter 2 of Hebrews, in verses 10 through 11, we read these words, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is speaking of Christ being made perfect. We read in verse 11, following that, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is a perplexing verse because it says that Christ, the founder of our salvation, is made perfect through suffering. There's another place where it deals with this same subject in chapter 5 of Hebrews. In verse 8, it says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So we again see this connection to Christ's work, Christ's obedience, and this idea of being made perfect. Now, what we have to understand by way of negation is what this is not saying. It's not saying that Christ was not already perfect, for Christ is the eternally begotten Son of God. He is God in human flesh. He has always been perfect. He is eternally and infinitely perfect. But when it says he's been made perfect, what that's referring to is that through his obedience to the will of the Father, he was perfected for his position as prophet, priest, king, which all can be summed up, that threefold office of Christ can be all summed up into one position. He is the mediator. He is the mediator between man and God and the only mediator between God and man. That eternal plan of God to rescue a people in which the Father in eternity plans to send the Son. And in eternity, the Spirit is going to empower the Son. It took place in space and in time and in history. And that is why we say that Christ was perfected in that office of actually completing and accomplishing that work that was hatched eternally. Now what is this perfection? This is the very perfection that is required for access to the presence of God. In fact, what we have seen over and over again in the book of Hebrews is that in Christ... We have access to the throne of grace. We have access to the presence of God. But what we have seen in contrast to that is in the Old Testament, under the Levitical system, they nev- the people never had presence, the access to God's presence. Only the high priest did. And that was only on the Day of Atonement when he would go into the Holy of Holies. Why is that? Because perfection was required. And so what does this perfection bring about? It brings about the presence of God. Now we have access to the presence of God. This is why in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, in a whole array of, of titles, one of those that Peter says of the Christian is that the Christian is a royal priesthood. That that means that they have been set apart Now they have access. What was only at one time relegated to the priesthood of 
of the tribe of Levi and specifically to the sons of Aaron, the high priest, is available to all those that are in Christ. How can such glorious terms be stated about the faithful? Perfection. How can such a term be stated about us that that, that's what we actually receive and that's what we actually become? Because again, we recognize we're not perfect. But then the text of Scripture says He makes perfect. That is something that's accomplished and we enjoy right now. The perfection Christ received by obedience and what was accomplished is given to His people by virtue of union with Him. In other words, we receive Christ's perfection as we are in union with Him. So that when we stand before the Father, He doesn't see us in our imperfections, but rather He sees us covered in the perfection of Christ. It's much like the righteousness that God requires We know that it's not a little bit of my righteousness mixed with a little bit of Christ's righteousness because the Scripture says, No, none are righteous. No, not one. So it's not my righteousness before God. It's not my imperfection before God. It's rather the righteousness of Christ imputed. It's the perfection of Christ that is by union And that is stating a declaration, a legal declaration, that if perfection is required of a holy God, you are made perfect before Him because of what Christ has done. And that is received by faith. You know, you think about this passage that I read from Ephesians a little bit earlier, where it says that Christ gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, meaning that the Father was pleased in what the Son had done. He was pleased, and it was, it was a savoring thing. What's the result of that? What's the result of that? And you think about this, and we know, we know that we're sinful people. We know that even in Christ where we have forgiveness and we've been told we're cleansed with our sins, cleansed of our sins, and that our sins have been taken from us. They've been placed upon the cross. The debt is canceled. The Scripture very clearly tells us those things. But we know that we still struggle with sin. And so we wonder, what is, how does God view me in His sight? Knowing that I'm still sinful. Well, listen to what Scripture says. Christ was a fragrant offering. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. What beautiful language. The sacrifice that the Father accepts and is a fragrant offering, a fragrant smell. It's pleasing to the Father. Now, because we're in Christ, we are told that we are that pleasing aroma 
to the Father, no longer under condemnation, no longer under his wrath, no longer under his judgment, but now we are actually pleasing in his sight. And it's not because of anything I did to get it, to maintain it, to keep it. It's because of my union with Christ by faith. It's because of what Christ has accomplished. What a great Savior we have. What a merciful, glorious Savior. All glory be to Christ as we sang earlier. This excludes the idea of anything that we may offer in salvation. This excludes works. This excludes merit. This excludes any of our own efforts to save ourselves. We are viewed by God as complete and whole and perfect in Christ. He accomplished the perfect salvation. He accomplished the sufficient salvation. He accomplished a whole and complete salvation. It says in the text, it's for all time. That means it's unceasing. That means it's without interruption. That means it cannot be disrupted. It cannot be thrown off. It cannot be taken away. We're not declared righteous in the sight of God. We're not declared perfect in the sight of God. And then our sin disqualifies us. We're declared it as is completed in Christ. If I could disqualify myself, I would have. If you could have disqualified yourself, you would have. But your salvation does not rest on you, it rests on what Christ has completed. Our assurance of faith is never to look at how well did I do, how much do I love Jesus, but rather how much Jesus loves us. That is the work of Christ. If we could disqualify ourselves, it would mean that once for all sacrifice of Christ would no longer be effective. It means that the once for all sacrifice of Christ did not actually, it did not actually accomplish something. It never brought it to completion. It was never whole. It means that Christ's work, it just wore off. It was incomplete. Would we dare say that about the blood and body of our precious Savior? That he was incomplete or that his sacrifice was insufficient. And to say his sacrifice was insufficient would be to say that Christ didn't actually accomplish anything. He just accomplished the chance for us to blow it. Which we would. So when we ever begin to wonder, am I saved? We must look to our ever-loving Savior and be reminded Christ's offering was for all time. Which brings us to this question, who receives this? Who receives this? Who is this for? Another way to ask is, for whom did Christ die? Notice what the text says that Christ offers for his people. It's those who are being sanctified. Those are the ones that have received this perfection. It is for those that have been set apart and set apart as holy. Now you'll notice the phrase here, it says this, those who are being sacrificed or sanctified. It's for them. Now this phrase, being sanctified, there's, there's a lot of debate. And if you have a translation different than the ESV, it says they are sanctified. And the ESV says they are being sanctified. And so is that speaking of something that's complete, 
is in the King James Version, it says they are sanctified, or the NSAB says they are sanctified, which is communicating completeness, or in the ESV, they are being sanctified, which speaks of a progressive thing. Well, it's actually in the Greek, it's in the present tense, which is speaking of something that's happening. And so I think it's actually correct in, here in the ESV where it's speaking of being sanctified. But I don't think it entirely means our progressive sanctification. And what do I mean by this? I know sanctification is a, a difficult word, but here it is in Scripture, so we must contend with it. In verse 10, you'll notice these words. It says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Have been sanctified. So that's speaking of something that's accomplished, something that has been complete. It's happened already. And that word sanctified, it just simply means to be set apart from normal use to holy use. That's, that's what, the way it was always used in the Old Testament, is to make something holy. So to be sanctified is referring to something that is holy. That is speaking of a positional sanctification. So sanctification, it means to be set apart. Sanctification means to be holy. But then when you read it in this sense are being sanctified, that's speaking of something that's progressive. That means something that's ongoing. That means it's something that's working. And so when it speaks of here of our being sanctified, it's in this continuous tense, which means this, put this together with me, that one-time act of being sanctified by Christ's work is continually held by the mediation of Christ. That's what it means. Meaning that one time, that complete offering of Christ where we are set apart as holy, it never ceases because it's ongoing by Christ's mediation. That means this, is we are never apart from Christ's work on our behalf. We, we are never outside of Christ's one-time, complete sacrifice for sins, but rather, Christ always stands on our behalf. Christ always mediates on our behalf. And so what is continual, what is eternal for us, is that Christ's mediation that is complete never ceases. When man fails you, he who neither sleeps nor slumbers will never let you go. That's what it means. Is that Christ continually stands for you. And so we are told this. This salvation, this perfection, are for those who are being sanctified. We have to wrestle with that for a minute. We have to wrestle what this means. John chapter 10, verse 15. Jesus says this, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So if you were just to just practice good biblical study practices here, you ask the question, who? Who does, who does Christ lay his life down for? According to John chapter 10, verse 15, it says the sheep very clearly. 
If you go to chapter 11, verse 52, this is actually of Caiaphas speaking. But it's interesting what Caiaphas says. Caiaphas says this in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So according to that, for whom did Christ lay down his life? It says the children of God. Now, Scripture also talks about the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath, so we know that not everyone is counted as the children of God. You go into Acts in chapter 20, in verse 28, Paul's telling the, the, the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. When it speaks of the spilt blood and the obtaining of that, it's speaking of the church. So those who are being sanctified, those that have been perfected, Scripture elsewhere calls them the sheep for whom the Son laid down his life, the children of God, the church according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, which means this. This is for, and these promises are for those that have received Christ by faith. And only by faith. And if there was another way of receiving it, other than faith alone, it means now we have added to the work of Christ and if we've added to the work of Christ, it means, and this is so important, Christ's work was not sufficient. It means Christ did not actually accomplish the job. And we have to ask this question, why the blood, the body, the offering, the sacrifice, why, why, does, why was this the plan? Why was it necessary that God send His Son to take on flesh, to become man? Well, the Scriptures tell us it was for sins. In fact, verse 12 makes it very clear. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, why did Christ offer Himself? Because sin made it necessary. You see, there's two options. God could have allowed everyone to stand in judgment of their sins, and everyone would have been guilty and faced an eternal wrath of God. And God would be just for doing that. Or God could save a people. We've already seen that works are excluded. There's nothing we could do. But let's see why our works could never save us. And because of that word sin. And I want us to connect all of this together now of why he offered himself. And why our works could never bring about accomplishment of salvation. We're told in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who was that one man? That was in Adam. 
And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That is a universal indictment of all of humanity, that all of humanity is in the sin of Adam. That means that, that, that to the core, we're tainted, that we are born into sin, it has an effect on us. Theologians often call that original sin, is that we are stained by our great-great-grandfather Adam. And Scripture goes on to describe us as a result of that sin in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. What does dead mean? It means dead. It just means dead. We try to allegorize that or become metaphorical or poetic with that. No, it means dead. He says, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. All of us, in other words, Paul says, lived in this way. How? You might think, I didn't do a bunch of bad things. Well, Paul, Paul counters that and says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all lived according to our desires. We make decisions according to our strongest urge of desire at the moment. That's just a fact. He says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, Paul tells us in Romans that we are born into sin and then that sin that we are born into has an effect on us and that is this, we follow our own devices, follow our own desires, we go our own way. This is why scripture says that we are enemies of God, that we are guilty before God, that we are transgressors of the law. Now if you just think for a second... Maybe God's word is a little bit drastic. Maybe Paul was using hyperbole in this. But doesn't our own heart testify us in how we began? The word perfection is foreign to us because we know that we're not perfect. And as soon as we say, I'm not perfect, what is that an admission of? That I am sinful. And that's the problem is that perfection is what is required. And that is why Scripture speaks of what Christ provides for us in Colossians 1.20, that He provides us peace. What's the peace of that Christ mean? It means that we were at enmity with God and Christ secures peace between the Father and us. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that reconciliation is brought about. Why? Because we are at enmity with God because of our sin. So when we ask this question, for whom is this available? It's to those who have received Christ as Savior, for those who have rested in Christ. It is for those who are no longer leaning upon themselves and their own efforts and resting solely in Christ. That's who it's for. And so the good news of the gospel is if you are in Christ, Christ has made you Positionally perfect before God. He has made you righteous. He has made you holy. He has set you apart. The bad news is that if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means you're still resting on your own works, which will never earn you salvation, but will only get you the righteous justice of God. 
You see, in Christ we find wholeness. Out of Christ we find an unquenchable desire to find perfection. One commentator says this, After hundreds of years, those sacrifices were no nearer the attainment of their aim than they had been at the beginning. In other words, if we could spend the next thousand years trying to reach perfection, we would continually recognize that we are infinitely falling short of a holy God. Wasn't that the whole goal of the Enlightenment? Is through human ability and reason that we would reach some sort of high pinnacle? How did that work out for us? I mean, we chuckle, but think about all the disasters of war and the perversion of humanity that we see in death and dying. How is that perfection we're, we're moving towards working out for us? Let me ask you, how will you find wholeness? Where do you find completeness? Where do you rest? If we look to our own means of finding wholeness, we will be like those priests daily standing with work that never ends because we can never make ourselves perfect before God. How are we justified? How are we declared righteous? And the fact that we are declared with such radical terms such as holy, righteous, and made perfect and called a sainthood and a royal priesthood, we have to understand that the goal of our salvation is that idea of holiness. And this is the great work of our Savior. That He makes an imperfect people perfect, righteous, holy in the sight of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You for the Lord Jesus Christ, His once-for-all, one-time offering by which we are saved. We praise you that it was in your plan to set aside a people for yourself, a people that you gave to your Son, a people that the Son died for, a people that your Spirit sealed for eternity. We rejoice in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.